We are uh, starting a new three-week series this week. It's called Between. We all live between. We all live in relationships. And we're thinking about uh, God and me, you and me, and God and us in this next three weeks. This weekend, it's God and me. And what I'd like us to do is to dive into a fairly obscure passage in the Old Testament that involves the Ark of the Covenant. How many of you have seen one of those Indiana Jones movies? Raise your hand. If you've seen one of those, that's right. You were flicking through, looking for Christian TV, and it just came on, didn't it? I don't know how that happened. And uh, the Ark of the Covenant is featured heavily, kind of depicted as a terrifying, almost magical box. If you get anywhere near it, in the wrong attitude, you're going to get nuked, is the principle that seems to come out of that of that movie. Well, I believe there are some things that we can learn from the details of the tabernacle, the tent where it sat, and the construction of the ark. So turn with me, or look with me, Exodus 15, a few verses from there. Make the ark's cover, the place of atonement from pure gold. It must be 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Then make two cherubim from hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover, Mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all of one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover. With their wings spread above it, they will protect it. Place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give to you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. I will meet with you there. And talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the Ark of the Covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. God speaking there to Moses. And then in Psalm 80 and verse 1, it says this. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim. I've lived, Ken and I have lived in America for many years now, and there are many things that we love and enjoy about living in this great nation. I love drive-throughs. I love being able to drive up to, a, to one of those windows. I never get what they order because they can't understand me, but I, I, I love the principle, at least, of the... I love that drive-through banking, you know, where you get the plastic tube and you put the money in and... that, that I love... All of that. I love driving in America. I love driving big roads. I love that. And gas, gas prices here. You may complain in England right now, gasoline is $9 a gallon. So every time I fill up with gas in America, I get ecstatic about it. And I just want to kiss the ground and say, God bless America. I love driving here. Roundabouts are scary. You people are bad on roundabouts. Sort it out, people. Put it into high school education or something. It's just horrible. I go to Sentara and I have to pray that I will survive just going to that place. But one of my favorite things about driving in America is this. Cruise control. You know that thing? Cruise. That's my impersonation of cruise control. You're driving along on the highway and you think it's time to just settle back and cruise control. How many of you would admit that sometimes when you do that, 10 minutes later, you become aware that you've not been aware for 10 minutes? You 
are not even conscious of where you've been. Raise your hand if you've ever done that. No one is waiting to arrest you. Just raise your hand. Okay. Raise your hand if you never raise your hand. Whatever. I want to suggest to you this weekend that it's possible to be on cruise control when it comes to faith. Being a Christian. Here's what, what happens. You, you, you go to church. It's Sunday morning. That's what you do. And you've got a basic Christian morality and ethic. You pray prayers, especially in emergencies. And maybe you even get involved in, in serving. You're doing all the Christian stuff. But there's a danger that we get into cruise control where we miss the very heartbeat of what this whole Christian thing is, which is about being in relationship with the relational God. Hundreds of years ago, there was something called deism that was practiced in America. Deism was the idea that, yes, there was a creator God, but he created the universe like a clockmaker creating a mechanism. He then withdrew, disappeared, and sometime in the future will make another appearance. But in the meantime, we just try and do what's right and live on the planet the best we can. There is a danger that we can end up living as Christian deists who do the Christian stuff, but the heartbeat of relationship is lost. When we look at Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, in Genesis, we see a portrait of a God who is strolling in the garden, interacting with his creation. In the book of Revelation, we see God marching into eternity with his people. And everything in between is about relationship with him. The Ark of the Covenant is an example of that. Um, Moses took a photograph of the Ark with his iPhone 1M. And <laughs> I made that up then. I made that up. But here's an artist's representation, the that um, the so-called mercy seat, which is not a seat at all, that, that cover at the top with the two, with the seraphim, with their wings, almost touching this artist's impression, actually buried in the creation of this. I believe there are some truths about us, about me and God, if you will. So follow with me in the bulletin. First of all, first of all let's realize that God is the I will meet you God. God is the I will meet you God. Verse 22, I will meet you, he says to Moses. If the Israelites had any doubt that God was around, all they had to do was look over there. And over there, there was a tent. It was called the tabernacle. Variously, it was also called the tent of meeting. And it's said to the Israelites, God is among you in your travels. Tremper Longman says it's the sacred space for the long haul. God camping among his people. I'm intrigued by the fact that John in his gospel, when he wanted to talk about the coming of Jesus to this earth, he uses tabernacle language. John chapter 1 verse 14, so the word became human and made his home among us. And that word for home or dwelling is the word tabernacle, which is why some translators translate John chapter 1, God pitched his tent among us. You see, the writer wants us to see a connection between Exodus and the ark and John's gospel, the God who comes to camp among his people. More than that, 
When you look in the New Testament, you see numerous examples of the relational God. Luke 15, which is generally called the, the parable of the prodigal son. It's not really about the son at all. But we read in verse 20, And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And Jesus is wanting to say here, hey, take a snapshot of what God is like. He's the God who doesn't lift a left eyebrow in the style of the slightly bemused Victorian grandfather. But he's the God who comes running out to us with relationship. Eugene Peterson says, God does not present himself as an idea to be pondered. God does not present himself as an experience to be savored. God does not present himself as a power to be used. God presents himself only in relationship. And so Moses is not just sent to the promised land. No, God says, I'm going there. Do you want to come with me? And the disciples are not just sent with the gospel to the nations, but very quickly Jesus, in sending them, says, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. He is the meeting God who knows us and loves us. I cannot begin to tell you what a difference that made to me when I became a Christian. I've talked about my parents before, but let me be perhaps especially vulnerable this weekend. My parents were good people, but somewhat damaged by their own experiences. My father, uh, captured in North Africa at the beginning of the Second World War, captured as a young 19-year-old, incarcerated for four years and kept in a state of near starvation in a camp about nine miles from Auschwitz. And finally, he escaped and worked his way back across Germany. I've often wondered what inner gremlins he wrestled as a result of losing his youth to that incarceration. And my mom was a bruised, a bruised lady. She was, she was depressed before depression really had a name. Her own father walked out on her when she was just a baby in arms. He just disappeared one day and just didn't come back. We never, we never found out what happened to him. Years later, the marriage was annulled because he'd just taken off and my grandmother remarried a bullying thug of a man of whom I was terrified. And so the result of this, this post-war couple, good, good people, would not in any way want to dishonor them, but damaged by their own journey. My brother left home when I was 12 and it was them and me and I can just remember not feeling very seen or noticed. One day there was a burglary at our house. This is so embarrassing. I was the only one in the house at the time. Someone came in and pulled stuff out of all the drawers and turned chairs over and just turned the place over. Not much was, nothing was taken, but they just came in and wrecked the place. My parents got home and they said, what happened? I said, I, don't, I was upstairs. And, and they called the police, and the police came, and they took a statement. But I'm sorry to tell you, they never caught the thief. The, the crime was never solved. And the reason for that is the burglar was me. 
I was so desperate to be noticed. Hello? So, <laughs> let me just break this atmosphere from some of you looking at me going, Pastor Jeff, we knew you were weird, but this really is taking the biscuit here. And then I became a Christian. And I heard about this God who knew everything about me. He saw me. He knew me better than I know myself. And he loved me absolutely and wanted me to know him. And then I got into ministry and I, I started to use humor while preaching. And sometimes when I said stuff, people would laugh. Not this weekend, but occasionally it <laughs> happened. And and there were some folks out there that didn't like that. You ever met those Christians, the frozen chosen? You know, they're kind of they're allergic to fun, you know. They're kind of saved forever but constipated with it, you know. And they'd sit back there making, you know, everyone else would laugh. And they'd sit back there and make horsey noises, you know. I didn't know whether to slap them or give them a bale of hay, you know. I wasn't sure what to do. And I had a bit of a crisis about it because I, I wanted to be deep and not, you know, not fun because if you're fun, you're probably superficial and lightweight. So I complained to God. And I was in California preaching. And after the service, this lady came up to me. She said, I've got a word from the Lord for you. And I thought, oh, no. I've got enough trouble. She said, when you were preaching tonight and everyone was laughing, she said, I had a picture of Jesus. I said, really, what was he doing? She said, he was laughing. And he was hopping up and down and dancing and clapping his hands. And she said, Jesus wants you to know that he really loves you and likes you. And he really, he thinks you're really funny. Now, you may not agree, but don't argue with Jesus, all right? You ever heard something like that and you think that's too good to be true? That, that, you know, she had too much pizza. <laughs> so I got on an airplane. I flew back to the UK. I was preaching in Scotland. In Scotland at the Plockton Bible Week. And I didn't say anything about what this lady had said to me in California. And after I'd finished preaching, this lady came up to me. She said, I got a word from the Lord for you. I can only do it once. <laughs> German lady. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. She said, I got a word from the Lord for you. <laughs> so I said, I won't try and do her accent anymore because that's the only bit I can do. I, I, said, uh, I said, what is it? She said, when you were speaking tonight and everyone was laughing, I had a picture of Jesus. I said, what was he doing? She said, he was laughing and clapping and dancing around. He thinks you're really funny. And I'm like, yes! Yes! Because God sees this fragile, messed up, in the process, stumbling, getting lost everywhere I go, idiotic person. And says, I love you. And he says it to you too. He is the I will meet you. God, don't settle. Don't settle for the periphery of Christian activity. 
without the heartbeat of meeting this meeting God. Secondly, secondly, he's everywhere. He is everywhere, but there are meeting places for God and me. He's everywhere, but there are meeting places for God and me. I will meet you there, says God to Moses. Let's take a look at the ark again. And, and God said that his presence would hover between the wings of the seraphim. What do you see between those two wingtips? I'll tell you what you see. You see nothing but air. 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 <laughs> you see, in a world where deities were represented by idols, God was representing himself as being the God in the air. The God who is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He is in all places. When we pray, our Father who is in heaven, we're praying a poor translation. A better translation would be, our Father who is in the heavens, which includes the air immediately around your body. If we don't get that, then prayer becomes like lobbing snowballs at the moon. Hello? Hello? Anyone? Earth to God? Anyone out there? Amen? But you see, God is close. We've got to get that. Dallas Willard says, some see God as a Wizard of Oz kind of being, sitting in a location very remote from us. The universe is then presented chiefly as a vast empty space with a humanoid God and a few angels rattling around in it, while several billion human beings crawl through the tiny cosmic interval of human history on an oversized clod of dirt circling an insignificant star. To such a God, we can only say good riddance. But it seems that when many people try to pray, they do have such an image of God in their minds. They therefore find praying psychologically impossible or extremely difficult. No wonder. So God is everywhere. He is close. But I want to say that there are meeting places for us where we might especially meet with God. The Celtic Christians called them thin spaces. Now, we've got to be careful with this because they, they had a thin space theology before they became Christians. So there's some, there's some roots in this that we need to think about. But I know in my life, there are thick spaces where God seems a million miles away, and there are thin spaces. I'll tell you a thick space. Any airport I'm ever in is a thick space for me. Why? It's filled with people who are only there because they want to be located somewhere else. It's an emotional black hole. It's a thick space for me. But there are thin spaces, like um, Berry Church. Berry is the village from which I now come in south of England. If I took you down Berry Lane, I'd take you to the 10th century church that has been there for 900 years. When it was built, they didn't speak English in England. They spoke Anglo-Norman because the Normans had invaded. It was a French country. It was in Berry Church. I can see it as I stand here. I can smell the dust of the centuries. It was there 600 years ago in the reign of Henry IV that the village priest gathered everybody to say that they were about to be invaded. Guard your homes. I look at the Tudor chest from Henry VIII's time. 
at the 14th century screen. I go out into the churchyard where the shepherds are buried. Back then, everybody had to go to church. It was compulsory except the shepherds because they had to look after the flocks on Sunday. So when the shepherd died, they would put a a tuft of wool in his hand to signal to God that he had a reason for not being in church. And I stand there and I smell the smell of antiquity and it becomes a thin space. Or when I'm by water, I'm talking ocean, not the sink, water. For some of us, solitude or silence. Henri Nguyen says silence is the royal road to spiritual formation. Or doing something different. I decided to do something different this week. For years, I've read my Bible on computer, and that's all right, until an email comes through. And then I think, I've got to read that email right now. And so I've discovered this new technological invention. It's a Bible, and it's got like a leather cover. It's awesome. It never runs out of power. You don't have to switch it on. All you have to do is open it. It's amazing. So what I've done is I've located my old leather Bible in a particular place in my home and I've said, God, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. I meet God in productivity. Meeting God is not just about retreat and silence. Eden was a thin place, but it was a place of work. I sometimes meet God in working. Another embarrassing confession. I have a to-do list, okay, And if I do something that's not on my to-do list, if I complete that task, after I've done it, I put it in my to-do list (laughs) just so I can immediately then check it off. How many of you suffer from this illness too? (laughs) They're everywhere. (laughs) However we do it, meeting with God, Sometimes I meet with God in the giggle of my grandsons. When Stanley said to me, Granddad, you make me laugh in ways I don't make me laugh. (laughs) My heart bursts. You say, I'm too busy for all that. Let me tell you about Susanna. I read a true story about Susanna, this lady, this week. She and her husband, she was married to a preacher. They had 19 children, and all except 10 of them died in infancy. Her husband left her for long periods of time, sometimes to preach, sometimes because there was conflict. They couldn't agree about anything, politics, money. They were plagued by debt. He went to debtor's prison on one occasion. One of their children, one of their children that survived had severe disabilities. Another one couldn't talk and until he was nearly six years old, and Susanna was desperately sick for most of her life. But each day, she would pull her apron over her head. And that was a signal to the family, I'm meeting with God now. And she would pray. And two of those kids were John and Charles Wesley, who brought the gospel to hundreds of thousands of people. Where's our meeting places? With the God who is everywhere, but perhaps says to us, I'll meet you there. Thirdly, thirdly, the basis of meeting, law and mercy. The basis of meeting, law and mercy. Place 
Inside the ark, the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give to you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. I, I really want you to see this. Because you see, meeting God is not a neutral experience. Change will happen if we truly walk with him. When Moses encountered God, he encountered an ark that contained the law. And the law said, this is how to do life. Meeting God is not neutral. It jolts us out of our way of seeing the world. Zacchaeus meets God. Everything's different. Levi, sometimes called Matthew, meets Jesus. Everything's different. I, I, I want to push it to this extent. If we call ourselves Christian, but not much has ever changed in our lives, I have to wonder about our experience. Because this God loves us completely as we are, but loves us too much to leave us that way, and wants to bring his loving transformation into our lives. So there was an encounter with law. But over the top of the tablets was the atonement cover. Once a year, the high priest would sprinkle blood on that cover. You see, there was law, but there was mercy and grace. This is how you should live, says God. Not some kind of nominal dab of religion for a Sunday morning. Wilbur Reese's poem sums that up. I've rewritten it slightly because it comes across as very racist if I don't. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love someone with a different skin color or even less a refugee. I don't want to pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I would like a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. No, that's not Christianity. A dab of God. Have a little bit of God for the weekend. There will be transformation. But there will also be grace because of Jesus. Let me show you something that I just noticed in the Bible this week, which may or may not be significant, but to me it seems that way. Look at this in Exodus 15 and verse 2. God says, I will meet you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim. So in the Old Testament, God is enthroned between two angels. But look at what I noticed this week in the New Testament, Matthew 27. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. In the Old Testament, an angel each side. In the New Testament, a rascal each side. Speaking to us of grace and forgiveness. Let me read these somewhat complex words to you, but you might want to come back to these this week. Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priests here on earth 
who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. There will be change. But mercy is available for our failure and fragility. Thank God. Well, the last thing is this, the wonderful future. The wonderful future with God face to face. Listen to what Jesus says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And the Apostle John picks up the thought, we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. That's the future. Did anyone notice that the beginning of the end of the world didn't happen yesterday? Anyone notice that? And I despair sometimes because often it's Christians who run after this. And they say, a Christian numerologist has announced it. Here is the news. May I be blunt. There is no such thing as a Christian numerologist. No such thing. And so the prediction that the, the beginning of the end of the world would happen yesterday, not only is it false, but it inoculates the world to the truth that Jesus is coming back and that he has beaten death and that heaven is a reality. I talked about my parents earlier. Let me wrap this up by talking about them one more time. My dad, at the end of his life, a few years before he passed, he became a Christian in America. He only came to America once. And he became a Christian at the end of a service during the announcements. My dad is possibly the only person in the history of the Christian church who became a Christian during the announcements. He actually walked to the front without there being an invitation. And I had to go with him. And people were confused. Is he becoming a Christian or signing up for the Weight Watchers group on Wednesday? <laughs> and after he became a Christian, because when you meet God, stuff happens. You change. He became very tender. And he said, I love you a lot. And then he had a stroke. And the stroke robbed him of his ability to speak. Occasionally he could say yes. And then the other words that he could say were reflex words that you don't have to think about, which in his case were cuss words. So I'd say, how you doing, Dad? And his report was interesting. One night, I've told you about this before some time ago, one night I'm staying at my parents' home and Kay's not with me and there's a, there's a knock on the bedroom door. It's my dad and I'm thinking, what does he want? He can't, we can't have a chat. We can't talk. What does he want? And he came in, big smile on his face and he knelt down beside the bed. And he took the blanket and the sheets and he tucked me in real tight. Now 
I'm a 40-year-old man with kids and a mortgage. And there's no teddy bear on my pillow. But he tucked me in. And then he brushed a stray hair from my forehead. I had hair. (laughs) And he kissed me on the cheek. And he left. A few years later, I got a call. They said, he hasn't got long. Come. And I stood at his bedside. And my mom had gone out for a cup of tea or something. And I knew it wasn't very long. So I said, Dad... It's time for me to return the favor. So I took the blanket and the sheet. I tucked him in real tight, snugly. I said, Dad, do you remember back in Klamath Falls, Oregon, when you decided to trust Jesus? He said, uh. I said, are you trusting him now, uh? I said, well, he's gone to prepare a place for you, so you can go whenever you like. It's okay. I look into the faces of this congregation, very aware that there are some here who have recently lost loved ones, and the pain is intense. But I pray that you will be comforted by these words. And comfort implies pain. We don't say, oh, they're with Jesus. Well, that's all right then. No, we're sad because they are with Jesus. That means they're not with us. But comfort and strength can come in the knowledge that he's gone to prepare a place. My wonderful friend, I kind of brag on him endlessly, and he's in this service sitting over there. Don't look over there. He'll be feeling really conscious. But Dick Foth, you know, Dick, every, everything he says is wise. It's just irritating. He's so wise. It's just like, you say, you want a cup of coffee? And he makes a statement that changes your world. It's irritating. I love you, Dick. He says this about Jesus. He said, Jesus says to us, I'll leave my place. I'll come to your place. I'll take your place. Then, then we'll go to my place. Ladies and gentlemen, in a world of uncertainty where leaders are trading insults and threats and natural disasters are all around, It is no slogan or cliche, but it is the truth. We worship the Christ. He is risen and he has beaten the power of death and hell. And we can put our trust in him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. We worship you, risen Christ. You gather up everything that threatens us and causes us to be afraid. And as the one who is king and sovereign, 
You call us to put our trust in you and offer us your peace. You are the one who runs out to meet us. You're everywhere, but sometimes you say, I'll meet you there. Would you please, Lord, help us to maybe find some thin places, even this week. Would you help us to make appointments with you, to take two-minute sabbaticals, to whisper praise to you from the workplace? We pray too, Lord, for any here today who don't know you. And today could be the beginning of a walk by faith with you. As our heads are bowed, if you want to begin that journey, you can, you can come to him now. He will hear you, offer a prayer. Dear God, here I am. I want you, I need you. Please come into my life. Please walk with me. Please talk with me. Please direct me. Please take charge. Please forgive me. Dear God, here I am. I turn myself over to you. I want to live according to your ways and walk in your grace and forgiveness. Time has gone, but if you, as our heads just remain bowed, if you've just prayed that prayer or something like it, you went along with me there because you want to be a Christian. Can I ask you to do something really simple? Just slip up your hand for a moment and hold it there and then put it down again. Would you do it right now? Would you do it right now? And around the room, there are people doing that, and that is so wonderful. Would you put your hands down? And just you folks who have raised your hand, just look up at me for a moment. I'm not going to embarrass you. But at the end, our prayer team are going to be here. There'll be folks standing here at the front. And they've set time aside. They've got, they've got a package of resources they want to give you. Would you please come and have a word with them at the end? Because this is so important. So, Father, whatever the week brings, may it be a week where we walk with you, the meeting God. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.